0: Good morning again to you, and welcome. I have some announcements for you. Um, First of all, I should look behind me because I don't remember what they are. Today is the day that our gift card drive is ending, and so um, if you are wanting to do that, if you have something in your purse, remember to drop that in the little white box on your way out this morning, and we are excited to be able to distribute those to Cedar Way and to Vision House, and for those of you that don't know, um, we partner with an elementary school here in the Edmond School District. It's like a stone's throw away from here, and um, the resource advocate there um, has put together in the Edmond School District an opportunity for families to come once a month, and we put groceries in their car and um the we partner with the PTA and other community members but our like thing that they really depend on from us is toilet paper and some fresh produce items and so that's really cool to just show up like every month and every once in a while there are extra things that they they need and we just get to be generous with them so thank you for your partnerships there And then we also work with Vision House, and Brookview helps um, to solely provide for their resident store. And residents get to come, and it's like as they see need that they have, they sometimes will use it as rent incentives. Um, And these are families that have faced homelessness, and they are working on getting them out into permanent housing. And so they spend about five years, on average, um, living and being mentored and learning how to do life so that they're not returning to their same situation. And so it's really cool in that resident store for us to be able to bring cleaning supplies and pasta and some soups and snacks. And we do diapers at both places as well, because as you know, diapers are very expensive. So um, we do that every month. This Tuesday is our next distribution date. And so we have a digital sign-up list that goes out. And um, you get that list by texting the word HELPING to that Brookview number, and it will show you what needs we still have for those places. And if you're someone that's just like, hey, I cannot go to the grocery store one more time, and I also hate Costco, anybody just like feel overwhelmed at Co- I hate it, I hate it. I walk out of there, With my cart like this, because I never want to have to go back. And they actually say, did you find everything you need? I'm like, have you seen that? Look at my cart. I found way more than I needed. I'm never coming back. And then I'm there next week. That happens. Um, So anyway... If you would rather make a cash donation, that is okay, too. And um, you can do that either by dropping a check in the lobby. Just make sure that on the memo line, it says um, for local missions or outreach or you can put Vision House or you can put Cedar Way and we will follow your instructions on that, but we also have a space online for you to be able to give um, and and send your money, direct your giving towards that. Um, Also we have a communication card, I think that's, yeah, there it is. and that's on your seat, a Connect card. If you are watching online this morning, um, good morning to you. And we love for you to fill out an online card by going to brookviewchurch.com. So that's it.
1: Dude. All right, you guys. Friedrich Nietzsche was born in 1844 in Germany, a brilliant thinker and pioneer in the field of philosophy. Close. Uh, so Nietzsche was a, a teenager when Darwin published his landmark work, Origin of the Species, in which he proposed the idea that the universe was not necessarily designed by a loving God of wisdom and good intentions, but instead our, our world is the byproduct of time and chance, a byproduct of natural selection or survival of the fittest. For <laughs> <laughs> It's going to be interactive today, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> from, from Darwin's theory sprang a totally new vision of the kind of universe that we find ourselves in. And his theory, as you know, has gained wide acceptance in the Western world, though there are a quiet but growing number of scientists who are questioning much of what's now just assumed. After Darwin's death, Nietzsche was really the first thinker to follow Darwin's theory through all the way to its logical conclusion. So he was like, okay, if there, is, if there is no creator in creation, just natural and scientific laws, then there's no meaning or purpose to life beyond the propagation of species, in which case all morality is a social construct at best. And, and this is Nietzsche and many Enlightenment thinkers' view. At best, it's to hold society together and stave off anarchy at worst, if you follow the development of the thought later on with the French thinkers, it's how the powerful keep hold of the powerless. Now, Nietzsche himself hated Christianity because he believed it to be a powerful lie by which, get this, by which the weak oppress the strong. Inverting what he saw as the natural order of things, where the strong prey on the weak and weed them out of the genetic pool to move evolution forward. Compassion was not his natural gift. <laughs> so it, it comes as no surprise that Nietzsche's ideas were later the foundation behind the ideology of the Third Reich, particularly his idea of the Übermensch, okay, or the Superman, which fueled the Nazis' ideas of Aryan supremacy, and was used to justify the Holocaust. Now, Nietzsche was utterly brilliant, and he had quite a few good things to say. But it turns out, and this may not be shocking to you, it turns out he was not a happy man. And in 1889, about five years younger than I am now, he suffered a psychotic break Over the last decade of his life, he lived virtually mute, locked inside his sister's home, isolated, lonely, scared, writing letters to his friends. In an earlier work, he boasted that on his deathbed, he would give a speech to his adoring fans, and his his closing words would be, Now I die and vanish into the nothing. Sources later said that his actual words were, Muter ich bin doom, or Mother, I am dumb, which is an ironic end for the man who said, God is dead. How are we doing? You guys feeling uplifted? <laughs> Glad you're here. Let me, let me share a happier story about a very different mind, that of another brilliant philosopher, Dallas Willard. Willard was a philosophy professor at USC. He was actually the chair of the philosophy department there for a while. And he was an expert in the field of phenomenology. How many of you would say you're an expert in the field of phenomenology? (laughs) You want to do the whole song? Oh, okay. You guys, I I took a a class in my psych program up at Western uh, on phenomenology. And I still can't tell you what it is. (laughs) <laughs> like, I, I tried to read a, a couple of the books that were assigned, but it was like trying to read a foreign language. The the, the, the language and the ideas were so far over my head, and I, I really came out of there only understanding two things about it. First, it has something to do with human consciousness. And second, it is for the unusually brilliant. And it was not for me. <laughs> So Dallas Willard was an expert in that realm of philosophy. I mean, utterly brilliant. But he is really better known to many as simply a devoted apprentice of Jesus. His writings on spiritual formation and, and what it is to follow Jesus. Those who knew him well often talk about his deep humility and compassion. For all of his success and renown and brilliance, his, his home was, was simple and modest. His demeanor, gentle and kind. So author John Orberg, who is also uh, very well known, he was mentored by Willard for many years. And after Willard's passing, Orberg said, he was the most intelligent person I've ever met, and his life was more beautiful than his mind. As Willard was dying of pancreatic cancer, which, from what I understand, is an exceptionally painful form of cancer, He refused any narcotics or pain medication. He explained to friends that he wanted to be fully alert for his passage into eternity. Um, He had written, of course, in depth about human consciousness, particularly the transition from this life to the next. And he had theorized that for the Christian, you might not realize you've died for a while. Because his theory was that your consciousness could possibly continue on like in an unbroken stream into the full presence of God. So he refused drugs, called a few friends by his bedside to sort of like write down what he was experiencing and all of that. And in the end, he described to them being in two places at once. In his bed and on the threshold of heaven. At one point he said, I see heaven open. And I feel more love coming toward me than I ever thought possible. And at the very end, he took a deep, sharp breath. His eyes lit up as if he was seeing something very real and very beautiful. And his final words were, thank you. Two men, both philosophers, both brilliant, Both names, people are going to be talking about 100, 200 years from now. One suffered a psychotic break, and his last words were, Mother, I am dumb. The other, thank you. Two stories that illustrate the power and the potential of the human mind. Its capacity, unbelievable capacity for peace and tranquility, or for agony and terror. The 17th century British poet John Milton once wrote in Paradise Lost, he said, the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. John Mark Comer, he said, the mind has a power like, unlike anything in all of the universe to free your whole person to the heights of human possibility or to drown and imprison you in a living hell. So this is part two of this series that we started last week on hearing God through the noise, right? Through the noise of our world and our culture and even, even inner voices. And today, I want, us to think of, I want us to think a little bit more deeply about the human mind, about what it really means to, like, believe something. And so to start off, I just want to define terms. The way that I'm using the word, okay, mind today is not the same thing as the brain. Like, in the world of psychology, the mind is sometimes uh, defined as directed attention. And neuroscientists now argue that you can use your mind, your directed attention, like what you choose to think about, to literally alter your neural pathways. Like, to rewrite your neurobiology. So, our mind is the capacity inside of all of us to choose where we put our attention what we allow to flow in and out of our consciousness. And many of the great thinkers from Dallas Willard, right, from USC to Laurie Santos at Yale to Jewish psychiatrist Viktor Frankl argue that the greatest area of human freedom is the ability to choose what we do or do not think about. And some of you might know a little bit of the story of Viktor Frankl. Is anybody familiar with Viktor Frankl's story? A couple of you. He was a respected psychiatrist in Vienna, but he lost everything when the Nazis rose to power. They took his home, they demolished his career, they took his possessions, and then they took all of his loved ones. His wife and his entire family, except for his sister, were all killed in the gas chambers. I mean, can you imagine? So, Franco spent years at Auschwitz, where he was beaten, starved, brutalized, where he saw his fellow prisoners, his friends, die daily. And the suffering and the, and the torture inflicted on, on him are unimaginable. He was forced to compete with other prisoners just for scraps of food or forced to work in the snow with no shoes or forced to watch the just random execution of friends on the whims of the guards, never knowing from one day to the next if he'd be forced to shovel out the ashes that had the day before been his friends or if tomorrow he'd be a part of the ashes himself. So he wrote a book chronicling his experience called Man's Search for Meaning. Like, he, dis- he, he survived this. And he describes the horror of the, of the camp and his mental state and the way that it kind of changed through it all. And it is famous for his deep insight into the power of the human mind. Um, I, had, I had actually heard about it for so long that I, I finally read it a few years back. Has anyone read that book? Okay, a couple of you guys, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you what, it is not for the squeamish. Um, I actually had to take some breaks. Like, the horrors of what, what he describes in there, like, physically made me nauseous. It is gruesome. But his insights into the power of the human mind are incredible. So I just kind of kept going because it was, it was well worth it. Frankel ha- had stumbled onto something. So here's the gist. Gradually, like emaciated, naked, humiliated, sick, without reasonable hope of liberation or reunion with loved ones or his life or anything good, Frankel began to realize that there was actually one freedom left to him. He saw how some prisoners, even though they were starving, would offer their scraps of bread t- uh, to others or to, to they would reach out and comfort those that were even weaker than they were. And he came to realize what's become a, a, like a, a hallmark famous line from the book. He said, everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. So right there in that camp, amidst what could, I think, to be described as, a, as hell on earth, Frankel began to make little decisions. Every day he made decisions. He chose to cherish the thought of those that he loved, As a doctor, he chose to help others as much as he possibly could, and he looked for ways to exercise this this new freedom. He grew extremely conscious about making choices, choosing what he would think, think about, choosing what he would dwell upon, choosing words he would speak and how he would say them and who he would say them to, choosing to help those that were suffering around him, choosing how he'd respond to the daily humiliation of what he was going through from the Nazi guards how he'd walk and how he'd hold his head high, and he made choice after choice after choice every day. Now, I can't imagine walking through that kind of hell. But Frankl wrote all about his experience in the camp and what carried him, and he explains that as his mindset changed, he began to make more and more choices that he sensed mattered. And he felt his freedom expand. And one writer commenting on the strength Frankl discovered in the camp, just in awe of his perseverance and resilience, put it it like this. He said, His guards had more liberty. They could leave the camp, walk where they chose, spend what they wanted. But Frankl lived with greater freedom. The greatest human freedom is to choose what we do or do not think about. Not even the horrors of a concentration camp can take that away. And yet, the mind can also become the place, like, of our greatest bondage. And this is why Jesus had so much to say about the importance of the mind. And some of you might be like, finally, Jesus. <laughs> we'll get there. That was, that was the longest intro in the history of Brookview intros. But a key part of how Jesus heals us, like our whole person, is to first set us free in our minds. It's where he begins. In Romans, Paul spends eleven chapters explaining just the beauty of the gospel, the beauty, the good news of Jesus, his his life and his teaching and his death and his resurrection and all that all the, all the goodness that is now thrown open to us. spends the first eleven chapters explaining all that, and then, and then, um, and then he writes, starting in verse in chapter twelve, he writes, "Therefore, okay, in light of all of that." I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. He's saying when you when you begin to see clearly who Jesus is and what he's done and the life that he's inviting you to begin experiencing he's saying go all in. You're a whole person. Offer him your whole life, and he will transform you into something beautiful. And where does this transformation begin? Verse 2: Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is: His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So Paul is, is pleading with us to resist conforming to the world right the portions we talked about this last week those portions of of the culture around us that are broken and and cause destruction and to instead be utterly transformed in our minds Um, so in a passage we looked at last week jesus said to his apprentices if you hold to my teaching you are really my disciples then you will know the truth and the truth will what set you free the truth will set you free So the key to freedom, according to Jesus, is that we that we hold to his teaching. What does that mean? Like to believe Jesus, it means to believe him and it means to live into his teachings. But it's interesting because in the church, this idea of believing often gets reduced down to just like knowing information. Do You know what I'm talking about? Like, so the Enlightenment, of which Nietzsche was very much a part, overemphasized the power of information to change people. And it's a fatal flaw that we, that we see live on both outside the church, like in the Western educational system, right, Kate? Yes, ma'am. And inside the church, in most of the discipleship models that are around these days. Because we've all seen information alone is not enough to yield transformation. You guys, if it was, it would be so easy Right? We could just read a couple of books and we'd be good. You know, one in-depth study through scripture and it's just like, bam, done. Let's go live it now. Right? If it, if it was only that easy. What Jesus is talking about goes well beyond amassing information in our heads. It means his teaching sinks into us and begins to reshape us from inside out. Like our, our thinking, our values, our behavior, all of it. So in John 8, Jesus says, our freedom hinges upon holding to his teaching, and immediately when he says this, the religious leaders that are kind of sprinkled in the crowds all around him, they start to object, because they've been resisting Jesus, and his words, and his way, and his identity, and his teaching. They, for whatever reason, they cannot absorb, let alone hold on to, the beauty of his teaching. Why? Why? What's keeping his words from landing like, in, in them, in their inner person? Well, as we saw last week, their minds and their hearts are closed. And so Jesus addresses the source of it all. He says, why, why is my language not clear to you? Right To those that are resisting him and fighting, fighting with him. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. And why is that? Because you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. So this is a reference to the story in Genesis 3, right? Adam and Eve and the snake and we looked at all of this last week, and if you weren't here, and I would just say if you weren't here and you're able, uh, please go back and listen to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify, or you can watch it on YouTube, because it's c- it'll be pretty foundational for where we're going for the next several weeks. But let me give you a, just a quick summary, because some of you are like, I don't remember what we talked about last week. You guys, I preached it, and I don't remember <laughs> what we talked about last week. So so here we go, real quick, uh, just quick uh, we noticed three simple but provocative ideas from Jesus in John 8. First, for Jesus, number one, there is a devil. He he doesn't dismiss the idea of the devil, as most people do today, as as a kind of pre-modern myth for the uneducated or the superstitious. For Jesus, the devil is a real but invisible force that is behind the evil in our soul and in our society. Okay, secondly, Jesus explains that for the devil... His end goal is death. His objective is extinguishing life itself. He is a murderer. His goal is to kill all love and beauty and life and goodness, to drive the human soul and society itself into the abyss. And then third, and this is is a little bit less intuitive for many of us, but number third, his primary means is what? Lies. Lies. Jesus says he was a liar from the beginning. Okay, again, a reference to Genesis 3. We dove into this. So when the devil, personified by the snake, comes at Eve with, a dis- with destructive intent to ruin her and all humanity, he does not come at her with a sword or a spear or an AK-47, right, or a weapon of, of any kind. He comes at her with what? With an idea, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And we saw that this, this, this idea is, is an attack on kind of the, the three big human questions that we wrestle with, the three big ideas in philosophy. Okay, number one, who is God? Number two, who are we? Or on an individual level, who am I? And number three, what is the good life? What what is the best way to live? What is the way to happiness for human beings? So who is God? The serpent is saying, God isn't who he claims to be. He's deceiving you. He's, He's holding out on you. He's trying to limit you. He's not really for you. You can't trust him. So trust yourself instead. Who are you? Eat it and you will be like God, meaning your, your current state and circumstances are, are not enough. You shouldn't feel grateful for all that you have, just discontent. Any and all limitations upon you are bad. Don't you realize you can actually ascend beyond God? Right now, you're limited, but apart from God, you will become more. So never suppress your desires. Be true to yourself. Listen to your gut. Listen to yourself. Be your own guide. And then, of course, what is the good life? The good life is independence, the ability to do whatever you want whenever you want. So think for yourself and pursue whatever your heart craves. Look at this enticing, mouth-watering experience. Eat this, have this, do this, experience this. If it feels good, do it. Your happiness is contingent upon you grabbing hold of whatever it is you desire. And these are still the lies that ruin souls and societies. So centuries ago, Ignatius of Loyola summarized it this way. He said, sin, what is sin? Sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. Who is God? Who am I? What is the good life? You guys, the way that we answer these questions shapes our lives. What we think, what we value, how we behave. So, okay, one last bit of review. Um, psychologists say that we all live from what they call mental maps of, re- of, of reality. So, like, in the same way that we all have mental maps to navigate our route to work or to school or to church. How many of you came here without GPS today? <laughs> oh, so good, you guys. You could probably get to your grocery store without GPS because you have a mental map, right? And it's accurate. But here's the thing. If someone went haywire in your brain and your mental map was inaccurate you could end up driving around like an Sultan <laughs> for a box of cereal or whatever. So, so we, we all have mental maps, right? But we have mental maps not only for geography. We actually have mental maps for all of life. We have mental maps for the best way to navigate our sexuality or how to handle money or power or love and romance for how to best navigate marriage, family, parenting we have we have mental maps for what what it is that life is all about but what what jesus was saying to anyone that would listen in john 8 that day is basically this you're being held captive by inaccurate mental maps Ideas about reality that are distortions and lies. So if you hold to my teaching, if you listen to it and come to understand it, and then you internalize it, and you live it in your inner being from the inside out, you will discover the deepest kind of freedom. And this is why Jesus came as not just a person who was going to live a sinless life, die and be resurrected. He came as a teacher. I mean, he taught a lot of stuff. And what does Jesus call for? He calls for apprentices, students, disciples, students and apprentices to do what? To believe. To believe what? To put their trust in his vision of reality. Because there are a whole lot of voices in our world clamoring to show us the way to good life. right? They're they're shouting on us every day. And we have to decide, who is it that actually is in touch with reality? Who is it that knows the way things actually are? Who has the authority to show us the way? And because when people live from inaccurate or incorrect mental maps, it brings destruction. It brings destruction to souls and societies. People are in bondage because of a lack of truth. As the prophet Hosea put it, talking to the people of Israel, He said, you stumble day and night, and the prophets stumble with you. You stumble day and night, and your teachers, they're at the heart of the problem. My people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge. And this is just as true today as it was in Hosea's day, because the world then and now is full of people who are literally dying or are in bondage because of a lack of truth. And you go, really? Well, let me just point out how this works like in in real life. This is just a kind of a simple example. Think of how many millions of people suffered and died down through human history because doctors did not yet understand or have knowledge of the concept of germs and the importance of a simple practice like hand washing. So doctors with good intentions were killing people because there were aspects of what they were trying to do that they didn't understand. Jesus comes to bring knowledge of reality as it is, of what is good and what is evil, of what is true and what's a lie, what's beautiful, what's ugly, and what it means to be human. And ultimately to teach us who God is, the ultimate revelation of of what's at the center of the universe and all of reality, right? The Father and the Son and the Spirit, a community of self-giving, joyful, agape love. Jesus has come to reset the trajectory of our life from one en route to death, to one en route to what he called eternal life. The Savior of the world comes as as a teacher, as a truth teller. And in the story of Scripture, the mind is where we first turned away from God, right, in Genesis 3. So it follows that the mind is where we must take our first steps if we're ever to return home to the God who loves us. And this involves the steady, slow replacement of lies with truth, and it is a lifelong process that Paul calls the renewal of the mind. I think immediately of that, like one-line summary of the, of the message of Jesus in Mark. So this is Mark's like one-line summary of of all this sums up all of Jesus's teaching. Um, comes in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15, and he says, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. So he's traveling around town to town, like preaching along a certain theme. And what's the theme? He says, The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus says to repent, right? Turn away, change, rethink, and to believe to believe the good news, the gospel, his teaching. Well, his teaching about what? About the cross and his death and eternal life? Sure. But also about, like, everything else that he taught. Like, who is God? And who are we? And what is the good life? He taught about stuff like friendship, how to do friendship and how to handle conflict. Taught about how marriage and parenting and, like, career management. He taught about forgiveness and loving our enemies. He taught about prayer and scripture and generosity and humility and kindness and compassion and honesty he's inviting us to believe all that he taught and dallas willard explained it like this as we first turned away from god in our thoughts so it is that in our thoughts that the first movements of the renovation of the heart occur thoughts are the place where we can and must begin to change The process of spiritual formation in Christ is one of progressively replacing those destructive images and ideas with the images and ideas that filled the mind of Jesus himself. Spiritual formation in Christ moves toward a total interchange of our ideas and images for his. And again, this is a process that can be summed up by Jesus' invitation to repent and believe. Um, The word repent in Greek is just metanoia, And it means to like change your mind or to rethink reality. The word believe is pistis in Greek, and it just means to be fully persuaded. And it carries connotations of deep trust and confidence. So we need to give this a little bit of thought because often, like in many churches and many backgrounds that many of you guys have come out of, repent and believe is treated as like a one-time thing. You know what I'm talking about? It's what you do at the moment of conversion. It's what you do when you first decide to follow Jesus. It's like step one into life with Jesus. But here's, here's the thing. When I look at the teachings of Jesus as a whole, this seems to me less like a one-time event and more like a like lifelong pursuit. I, I don't think it's, it's one of many steps in the process, you guys. I think what it is is it's the whole enchilada. You hungry? I mean, this word believe is used, when you think, of, it's used over and over by Jesus. It's, it's used over 100 times in the gospel of John alone. Um, to those in the, in the crowd or those he heals, he says, believe. To his apprentices who've already given everything to leave behind their lives and follow him, who, who were clearly already like all the way in, he says, believe. It's just like everywhere he goes, believe, 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 believe. I don't get the sense that Jesus sees this as a one-time event, but instead a lifelong process of discipleship, a process that never ends this side of death. It just goes deeper and deeper and deeper into our core. Uh, teachers of the, of the way of Jesus sometimes distinguish varying levels of belief. And they talk about private, like public, private, and core. So public belief is what you say you believe. Private belief is what you think you believe, and core belief is what you actually believe. Public belief is what you say you believe, but really, deep down, you may not. Private belief is, is what we think we believe, right? We think we believe it until it's tested in some way. And then core belief is what you, you actually believe. So public, private, and core beliefs are sort of parsed out and 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 revealed when, when when tests come, right? Through temptation or loss or circumstances. For example, we may not think we get our identity and our self-worth from our job until we're laid off, and then we find out. We might not think we get our happiness from our money until we lose it, right? And we could go on and on. So here's the key insight. The key insight here is, is that we, we violate our public and private beliefs all the time. We never violate our core beliefs. Let me give you a silly example. You guys, I have a core belief deeply held in my soul that punching myself in the face would be a bad idea. <laughs> that it would lead to pain. There would be nothing productive that would come out of it, and it would be stupid. So you know what, you guys? I never punch myself in the face. Can you believe that? You guys, I am so mature and grounded, I'm not even tempted. When it comes to punching myself in the face, I am blameless and pure. No matter how frustrated I am or mad at myself, no matter matter how much shame I need to pray through, I never punch myself in the face because we never violate our core beliefs. Never. So every time we're tempted and we feel like that pull in, in our heart and, you know, for all, for goodness sake, don't feel shame by whatever it is that tempts you because, can I just let you in on a little secret? We're all in this together. Holy cow, like I've got my stuff, right? I'm not going to lay it all out right now. You won't come back. <laughs> I got my stuff. And when you, when you feel that, whatever that is for you, it is a reminder and it is like a loving sign from your body and your heart, a sign that in the deep recesses of your person in that particular area, whatever it is for you, you have yet to come to fully believe what Jesus says. You might say with your mind, okay, I know the right thing to believe. And that's great. Like, that's, that's where we all need to start, right? But you don't yet believe it like deep in your core. Um, John Mark Comer explains the essence of discipleship and, and maturity. He says, Following Jesus is about getting from private belief to core belief. Getting the truth of Jesus deeper and deeper and deeper. Apprentices of Jesus are those whose life goal is to get the truth and the teachings of Jesus, our rabbi, deep into our core belief system. To live from his mental maps of reality and as a result to flourish and thrive with God in his beautiful world. Now, we'll talk next week more about, like, the pragmatics or the practice of the renewal of the mind. Like, how do we do this? How do we engage in this? Like, how do we let Jesus transform our mind? But for, day, for today, let me, let me give you, like, the big idea that we'll dive way more into next week, but let me give it to you from, like, 30,000 feet. Here's what we do. We fill our mind as much as we possibly can with the person and the gospel and the teaching of jesus and we let him reshape us from the inside out and this this leads me to just one final picture that jesus gives us in john's gospel and it's a different metaphor but really it's the same idea like from a different angle in in john 15 jesus is speaking to his disciples right after the Passover meal, right? It's this intimate time right after they've had the Last Supper, and he's explained to them that he's going to be killed. But he comes back to what he's been teaching the whole time. This time he uses uh, like garden imagery and language, which is not unintentional. Okay, When a rabbi takes people back to a picture of a garden, what do you think they're bringing them back to? So he takes them back to a scene in a garden, And he tells them that they themselves are like the garden. Their minds, their souls, their hearts, their whole person. They are like a garden brimming with potential. Each of them. To the Father, we are each gardens bursting with potential. And Jesus says that the Father is like the master gardener. That if we remain in Jesus, if we abide in Jesus, if we stay connected to Jesus, then the Father will take the tangled growth of our lives and he will prune it and shape it and unleash the beauty and life that's inside all of us. So in the landscape of our lives, with a gentle, skilled hand, the Father cuts what's dead away and prunes what's running wild. And our job is to allow him to do it and to let the branches fall, so that what he loves in us can stay and grow and flourish. So our job is to keep running back to Jesus, to entrust ourselves to him, to abide, to remain, to stay attached and let the Father work. So here here are the famous words from John 15. I, I just think, I think this is beautiful, and I love the garden imagery of this. Jesus said, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. You will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And notice what he's describing here is not a one-time thing. It's a lifelong process. Entrusting ourselves to the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit to be made whole, to be made beautiful as the Father reshapes us and as the Father prunes away what needs to go so that what needs to stay can flourish. This week, I was was thinking about, I was was reading the, I was doing my journaling and something hit me and I was thinking about my journey with God for the last 25 years. Um, I've been following Jesus for about 25 years. And what I realized is that there are certain ideas that are making their way more and more into my core. Like things I used to say I believed or things that I thought I believed, but things that are slowly becoming things, you guys, I actually believe. But it's taken a lot of time. And it's taken a lot of pruning by a father who loves me to help that get into my core. And I, and I realized this week that the seasons of greatest growth for me have been the hardest seasons of my life. The ones that did not go the way that I wanted them to go. Where lies that I was believing suddenly got revealed for what they are and false identities and securities and the things that I was putting my trust in started to get stripped away like I I stepped into my relationship with Jesus 25 years ago because you guys because I'm amazing no I I stepped into my relationship with Jesus 25 years ago because life fell apart and I was a freaking mess like my identity was all bound up in it just ridiculously so and and being a baseball player, right? And, and then I had an injury. And in, instantaneously, that was all gone. At the same time, I became a dad outside of marriage at 19 years old. And life, life was a mess. And suddenly, I was open to looking to something new for identity and security and, and hope. Enter Jesus. And he'd been pursuing me for a really long time. I had been resisting and so stubborn. But finally, I was open but only because life felt scary and uncertain. So the father seems to prune best and prune most in times like that. I think more recently of the five-year period where my son was sick and on the verge of death. It was a season that felt utterly uncertain and totally out of control it was in that season that I needed to not just say, oh yeah, I trust God. Or think to myself, yeah, yeah, I trust God. You guys, in that season, in order to survive and not lose myself entirely, I had to like actually trust God. And a degree of faith, there was something that happened in me where, where there's an aspect of faith that began to move more and more toward core for me. And what I'll say is, m- many of you are walking through loss, or uncertainty, or pain, or disappointment, or anxiety over the future, or whatever it might be right now. Part of your life, it feels like it's out of control. It feels like something is being stripped away. And here's, here's what I can tell you from experience. The gardener does his best work in those kinds of seasons, False identities and securities, they begin to fade into nothing and you're simply left looking at God, looking back at you in love. And when you encounter it, there is, there's nothing in the world like it. And you discover, regardless of my circumstances, which are not as I would have them be, regardless of my circumstances, I'm going to be okay. My happiness and my well-being don't hinge on circumstances, on things going the way that I want them to. And so I don't have to lie. I don't have to cheat. I don't have to manipulate to make sure that everything goes down just the way that I want. My deepest happiness resides in a simple reality. I can look at God looking back at me in love. You know, sadly, Nietzsche, he never discovered this. Dallas Willard did. And it is the truth that really can set you free. One that's possible to believe, not just publicly, not just privately, but eventually, when the gardener does his work, over time in you, as you remain in Jesus, eventually in your deepest core. Father in heaven. Walking with Jesus is not easy. And in a world with, with messages coming at us faster than we can even hear them and process them that are different, that are, that are painting a different picture of, of who you are, who we are, what the good life looks like. Father, it's hard to sort it all out. It's hard to sort through it all. But I'm grateful for your grace because all the stuff that we're getting wrong and while it leads to problems, it doesn't change how you love us. And so God, I just pray that you would continue in all of us to do the work that you do, to prune and to shape, to bring, in s- bring a- a- alive inside of us those things that are good and beautiful, and to kind of clear out and strip away this stuff that gets in the way of us being who you know we can be. Um, I pray that you would help us to learn to truly trust you deep in our core, and that we would, we would know the experience of, of Dallas Willard and many, many, many others down through history of looking at you, looking back at us with nothing but love. Amen.